There's a, um, a theme that appears with, I think, sort of suspicious, if not odd, regularity in films, in music, in plays, uh, in song. It makes you wonder why it is that artists continue to compose around this theme and why it is that we as human beings never seem to tire of it. Here it is. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful, verdant land ruled by a great, benevolent king. It was rife with fairness and goodness and love and justice. But then some catastrophe occurred, leading to um, some great evil power, some darkness coming over the land, and the, the people were weighted and oppressed by it, and the good king goes into exile. But before he leaves, he tells his people, I'll be back. And then after a long season of suffering and struggling under the darkness, just when things could not get any worse, the king slips unseen behind enemy lines into his former kingdom and reveals his true identity to his followers. And he brings together this band of freedom fighters and they go to um, war with this great evil force. And they win. And the halcyon days of the great kingdom return. Now you all recognize that plot, don't you? I mean, it's, it's, you've seen it a million times. You've read it some version of it, some variant of it, a hundred times. The theme is everywhere. It is in that song that I just sang uh, by David Wilcox, right? There is a stage, there's a drama happening. And uh, just when it looks like the evil side will win, just in the nick of time, the hero comes. Because it's love that made the mortar and it's love that stacked the stones, Something in us responds to that so powerfully when we hear it. And we don't tire of it, do we? I, um, I, in fact, years ago went with my wife with a group of friends. I'm a big Tolkien fan. We went to go see um, uh, this, the film, one of the films, for the last in the, in the series of films from The Lord of the Rings. What's its name? The Return of the King, Right? Duh, right? There it is. In the great battle, right? There's this moment in the film, by the way, it's the great battle at the end. I mean, this, I mean, it still makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. We're seeing it on this huge screen. I got all these friends around me. And just all the orcs are just, they're winning, they're prevailing, and they're killing everybody, and they're having, you can just tell they're actually enjoying themselves. And suddenly, up on the ridge, who appears? Gandalf the White. The great, he was gray, but now he's white, right? He's up on the hillside with his staff. And the horse, what does the horse do? Like this, right? And he's standing there, and there's a great light, and all the orcs look up like this, and they go, you know, uh-oh. And he comes 
barreling down this steep plain, this, this hillside, and you think, dude, you're alone. <laughs> but what happens then? This army comes up onto the ridge and waits, and you see it. It's a great company of, of men. And it suddenly, a Gandalf at the front comes down the Now, listen, you know, I'm kind of a crier anyway, but literally at this moment in the film, I'm standing on my chair with a packed theater going, you go, Gandalf! Go kick their orcapod! You know, I mean, and, I mean, it's just so powerful, and everything in you goes, yes! So here's my theory. I am... Um, I believe that that story is encoded in our human DNA. That we know in our heart of hearts, or we suspect, or our deepest hope is, that there is something true about it. It's not fiction, but something that is one day going to happen in human history. You see, the scriptures tell us that once upon a time, there really was a king. And we really did live in the light of his gold glory. Peace and joy and harmony characterized our existence, our relationship with ourselves, with the king, and with each other. But one day, something went very wrong. Under the allure of an evil power, we of our own will decided we wanted to be kings. We wanted to be gods. And so the king, in a sense, goes into exile. But before he does, he whispers to his people, I'll be back. And when I do, when I come, I'm going to gather together a band of freedom fighters who um, will push back against the darkness who together with me will bring back the days of, of days past, of those glorious days of harmony, of peace and life and love. And it's my belief that that story, that promise, that pledge is deeply insinuated into our souls and into our collective unconscious as human beings. It's in there. Listen, I don't think Peter Jackson, the director, or any of the writers who have allowed this story to bubble up into their works, I don't think they're sitting there going, I've got to get this Christ story in here. You know? I mean, even Star Wars, by the way, is the same thing. Right? I, I don't think... Um, you know, Lucas or Spielberg were thinking, gee, got to get the Jesus thing in here. They're not. It comes up on its own. Unconsciously and unwittingly, it emerges out of their DNA. And it's our story. It's our story. In our text today, John makes an absolutely stunning announcement. The word, and when he says the word, word, he's referring to Jesus, okay? The word has become flesh and has dwelt or is dwelling among us. Do you hear what he is saying there? It should really make our knees shake. He's saying the king is back. 
He has slipped behind enemy lines in the disguise of a baby, a perfect disguise. Who would have thunk that the great commander would come back as an infant? The legend has stepped into history. That which we thought was nonfiction or fiction is nonfiction. God has broken into history. The legend is true. And he is getting a band of people together to work beside him in taking back the world that was always his in the first place. Now I know, I know what some of you are thinking because I'm a New Yorker. And some of you are, are out there and this is what you're doing. You know, Ian, this whole Bible story, you know, that you're describing is no different than all the similarly themed stories like King Arthur and Robin Hood, the king goes away, the king comes back. Legends and childhood stories we've heard all our lives. This one is just one among many. Listen, this is an important idea. The birth of Jesus... The word, again, Jesus, becoming flesh is not one more childhood story or legend that is pointing to an underlying truth. It is an underlying truth to which all our legends and childhood stories point. Okay, so why on earth is Jesus called the Word? Why is he referred to as the Word? What on earth does it mean that the Word became flesh? Well, you know, in the original language, I've been doing a lot of original language stuff every week, but in the original language, the word for Word is, anyone know? It's logos, right? Logos. Now, that term to Greek philosophers and Jewish philosophers was a very hotly debated term. I I frequently say to people, it's hard for 21st century people to understand the Bible because we don't have 1st century Jewish ears. Without them, it's very hard to get. You and I go, Logos, word, what on earth are they talking about? A contemporary Greek, a philosopher, or even a regular person on the street would have read that and known instantly what John was talking about. The Logos referred to uh, a philosophical idea, meaning the purpose of life. To the Greek philosopher, the search for the meaning of life was really important, and that meaning of life was referred to as the Logos. What am I living for? What am I here for? Why should I get out of bed every day? What is my purpose? That was called the Logos. And they were consumed with finding out what the Logos was. They were meeting in town squares, arguing, what's the Logos? What's the Logos to life? They believed, and this is why it was important, that if you discovered the Logos of life, you would be able to realize and live into 
your own human potential in its fullness. That's what the Logos was. So now, imagine you're a first century Jew or a first century Greek, and you hear John come along and say, the word Logos uh, has come to the earth, has become flesh. The Logos has become flesh and now dwells among us. He's saying that the Logos is not a philosophical idea. It's a person. It's a person who has come into the world and lived among us and, by extension, only by plugging into him and him alone will you be able to live into your full potential as a human being. That's what John is saying. The Logos, the meaning of life as a person. And it's only in our joining, in uniting ourselves to him, that we find meaning, purpose, why we're here, why we should get out of bed in the morning. Okay, so let me, let me illustrate this for you. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, that's so cool, a light followed me. Did you see that? <laughs> God, this is like professional. <laughs> this, is, um, this is a light bulb, just for those of you who wanted to know. Um, now, this light bulb alone is pretty meaningless, isn't it? I mean, it's actually kind of a dumb-looking thing, if you think about it. It looks like Big Bird. You know, it sort of has a Big Bird shape if you hold it upside down. and You can't use it as a doorstop. You can't play catch with it. You know, it's just this. I mean, there's nothing to do with it, right? But this absurd-looking thing that has no other purpose, if you plug it in to its logos, the reason it exists is for this thing. When you plug it into this thing, what happens? It lives into the fullness of its potential. And it begins to shine. And it begins to give off life-giving light. Apart from its logos, it has no purpose. It's foolish. It's absurd-looking. But here you see it and you go, that's why you're here. That's why you're here. That's what John's trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us that the Logos became flesh and by our plugging into him, we find our life making sense in a way that has never made sense at all. Okay. Let me just close with a, a couple of ideas. A couple of questions. I, we're intimate now. Right? I've been here three weeks and numerous people here have invited me out for dinners because we're so close. Actually, I'm bitter that none of you have, but that's... I don't know. That just doesn't seem really Christmassy to me, but hey, you know. A couple of closing questions for you. 
And because I have spent some time with you, I feel like I can maybe step out a little bit. The first one is, have you ever thrown your life down at the feet of the king? See, there's no other way to come to a king. You don't walk into the throne room and give him the Obama bump. (laughs) Right? Have you thrown your life at his feet and said, um, take me unto yourself, take me into your band of freedom fighters and be my Lord and give me the great honor of pushing the darkness back along with you. Because my life makes so little sense without you. You know, so many human lives, by the way, this is my sense, is, uh, they're like news programs. You ever watch a network or you watch CNN or something and they just go from one episode to the next but, or one story to the next, but none of them actually fit with the others? They're all just incoherent. You know, they, they're all discrete, separate stories. And I think we, many people just feel like that's how their life goes. It's just individual episodes of, oh, so I had a girlfriend, I got a new job, and I, you know. But none of them hang together in a way that makes sense. There's no string of redemption. There's no, nothing holding them together. It's like pearls without a string. They're just sort of wandering around. There's no string that runs through their lives. I was in college, and... Uh, one of the mo- I was an English major in college and a, and a Latin American Romance Language Literature major, all of which really has helped me in my professional career. <laughs> and I remember in my junior year, I took a course on surrealist and absurdist literature. And I, I read a, uh, a play that actually really kind of changed me as a student and as a person. Ten years after graduating from college, it's still with me. Y'all didn't know what to do with that, did you? <laughs> You're all like, do we tell them? <laughs> the name of the, uh, of the play was Six Characters in Search of an Author. It was written by a Nobel Prize winner named Luigi Pirandello. And in the play, um, it actually takes place on a stage during the rehearsal for a play. And the writer of the play, the playwright is there, and the director and the stage manager. And out of nowhere, in the back door of the theater, in comes these six characters, these six humans. And they just stand on the stage. And everyone's like, what are you doing here? We're in the middle of a rehearsal. And, you know, you've got to get out of here. And the, the spokesman for this little group comes forward and he says, um, well, we're actually characters from a play. And our author left us and we've come here in search of a playwright to finish our story we have no author I know a few metaphors as powerful to to describe what I think many in the post-Christian post-modern world feel like like they're characters in search of an author the gospel is the story of the great author 
and his return. The one who can finish your story, which may feel fragmented and dislocated at times, like a news broadcast, who can put it together in a way that you go, this actually makes sense. This life is going somewhere. History is moving in a direction of restoration and redemption. And I can be part of that story if I throw my life at the foot of this king. I guess my, uh, my second question for you this morning is, do you yearn to find the meaning of your life? We traditionally, as followers of Jesus, believe that that actually can't happen fully until our lives are united to the Logos, which is been made flesh and the Logos' name is Jesus. He's not an idea. He's a person. He's a person. And that comes, my friends, when we throw our life at the feet of the king. And does it happen all at once? I, don't, you know, I know what some of you New Yorkers are thinking. Oh, yeah, sure, plug into Jesus and suddenly, bing, bang, I know what I'm supposed to do with my life, you know? No, it's actually on a dimmer. <laughs> it's not so much on that. It's on a dimmer. And by the way, in my experience as a follower of Jesus, it kind of goes, you know, I do know who I am, I don't know who I am. I do know who I am, I don't know. And that's why counselors have good jobs, you know, is working with people like me. But, but that's what it's like. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. We plug into Jesus, and very slowly over time, the light comes on, and we, we do discover who we are and what we're made for, and there are steps back and forward. But it beats the alternative. And maybe on the other side of the kingdom, that's when the light stays on for good. I get a little teary-eyed about that. That's when the light stays on for good. Well, that's my Christmas challenge to you, just to walk out of here with today. Are you at the feet of the king? Are you searching for purpose and meaning? Because that's what Christmas is actually about, the birth of meaning. So let me say a prayer and send you out. Well, God, what do we make of you? What do we make of this idea that you're the meaning of life and that you and the person of Jesus appeared to bring meaning and purpose, but, but also to present us with this great story that is not a legend, that is not fiction, but is actually true. And we can be part of it. And I, I would just ask that my friends this week, regardless of who they are or where they are on the journey of faith, that something I said, despite the fact that I am a fallen and broken person, will adhere to their soul and disturb them, discomfort them, and yet console them all at once. 
that they might live into the fullness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.